1: welding instructor alex declare knows vr training platforms like forge fx help students master their skills there's a big learning curve with welding virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact
2: this is the john Fugelsang
3: podcast Coming at you live from Los Angeles. Still, am I still in L.A.? My God. We are so pleased to be with you and hope you had a wonderful President's Day weekend. I hope you didn't succumb to all the pressure for President's Day. There's always a lot of peer pressure to party and drink and be reckless. I hope you just stayed home and did good presidential things, like get fined half a billion dollars for your crimes. I don't know. For the next three hours, we'll be making sense of all of it here at 866-997-4748 that number again is 866-997 grit and we would love to hear from you guys tonight and man we got a packed show tonight i do it's packed here tonight i mean really big so we're going to talk to a lot of uh, a lot of special guests tonight and we're going to be talking later in the show with our good friend Keith Price our beloved comedy daddy. He is the best and he's a brilliant man. Uh, comedian Frank Vignola will join us as well to talk about the Good Karma Comedy Festival, which I'm apparently performing at next weekend, Sunday, the, uh, what is it, the 30th? No, Sunday's the 25th. I think that, yes, this coming Sunday, the 25th, at the Church of Satire in Hanover, Pennsylvania, I am thrilled to be part of the Good Karma Comedy Festival, and I'm really glad to be going up and doing a, doing a solid hour in a great room that all my comedian friends have told me. It's wonderful if you are in the Pennsylvania area, the New Jersey area, or you're bored in Canada, come on down. We would love to have you. In our first hour, we're going to talk with Mark Alicia. He's an investigative reporter for Raw Story based out of Indiana. He's got a pretty crazy new article I'm really excited to discuss. You may have already seen it. It's called 11 Ways Donald Trump Does Not Become President. And it's all 11 possible, conceivable ways. I mean, there's there's no alien abduction on the list. I got to be honest. It's not every way possible. Every way remotely conceivable. That Donald Trump could somehow not be president, including he's assassinated or dies of natural causes or he agrees to quit the race before Election Day or things that might happen. Not, Not that his health is that great. Believe me, I have said for a long time, the greatest threat to Donald Trump is not the Justice Department, not Robert Mueller, not karma, but the seven inches of plaque let surround what's left of his heart. We will also be joined by a very special guest in our second hour, and that's the Reverend Dr. Jeff Hood. You may have heard of him before. I've talked about him on the show before. Never met him before, but last month we saw the first time in history a person was executed by the state with a fatal dose of pure nitrogen gas. It was given to a man named Kenneth Smith. He was 57. He was a death row inmate in Alabama. And Reverend Dr. Jeff Hood was his spiritual advisor. He was there in the room, when Mr. Kenneth Smith was brutally executed. It took a long time. Dr. Hood is someone who has counseled many death row inmates. He has made it part of his mission. He is a theologian unlike any you have ever encountered before. He is very radical, and we are really honored to have him with us tonight. And as always, come on, our most important guest is you guys. Our number is 866-997-4748. We would love to hear from you and have you join our cast of characters this evening. 866-997-GRIT. Chris Hauselt, our executive producer, runs this thing out of the South Carolina Bureau. The mighty Thea Harper produces our show out of Brooklyn. We are blessed and lucky beyond measure to have Sam here with us in the L.A. studio. Sam, you have been putting up with us for so long. This is the last night, I promise. You won't have to deal with me again until sometime in March, which is 10 days from now. So thank you very much eight six six nine nine seven forty seven forty eight eight six six nine nine seven guys let's let's uh let's do this thing. You may have heard the headlines earlier today Trump allies prepare to infuse Christian nationalism in second administration it's a big story in Politico. This conservative think tank is preparing to just pour Christian nationalism into all aspects of a second Donald Trump term. This is the Center for Renewing America, and they put Christian nationalism at the top of priorities if Trump gets a second term. It's headed by this guy, Russell Vought. I hope I'm saying his name right. I apologize if I'm not. Or Vought, V-O-G-H-T. He was a Trump cabinet member. He's a proud Christian nationalist. Now, for those who don't know, Christian nationalists are roughly people that believe the country was founded to be a Christian nation and that Christian values should be prioritized throughout the government, every level of public life. We get into trouble when it comes to what those Christian values are. Because one thing I have noticed, and I've spent my life trying to prove the past few years, is that Christian values are not necessarily the values of the character of Christ, as he appears in the Bible that these people pretend to follow. And I say pretend because you can't support Donald Trump and actually follow the teachings of the character of Jesus in the Bible. Now, atheists, I know I'm losing some of you already. Come back, come back. Uh, What I'm saying is you don't need to believe in the Bible as literal fact to call out the revolting, fake, flock, fleecing Pharisees and frauds that make up Christian nationalism in this country. These guys love to say that Christians are under assault. And, you know, he actually, uh, 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 they, 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 um, this guy, I'm gonna get his name right, Russell Vout. So according to the statement on the think tank's website, their purpose is to renew a consensus of America as a nation under God. And the documents Politico God didn't have any specifically specific policies on them, but they use Christian doctrine for hardline stances against abortion, even though the Bible's not against abortion, against same sex marriage even though the Bible's not against same-sex marriage and Jesus is never once anti-gay. And the only way to be anti-gay is if you reject Jesus's teachings and immigration. Oh, they love to come down hard on migrants and immigrants and asylum seekers, except the only commandment about immigration or borders in the entire Bible is the commandment, Old Testament and new, to welcome the stranger. Now, <laughs> I struggle calling these Neolithic mouth-breathers Christian nationalists because th- th- there's so many other terms to call them. I mean, th- that's just what the media seems to be calling them right now. What do you call them? I- I'm-, I'm asking you seriously. Give us a call anytime during the show. If you're listening on the podcast, please call us at live at the show or write us and let us know. What-, what should we call these people? Christian nationalists? Extreme right-wing Christians? Christian fundamentalists? Christian supremacists? Talibangelicals, Christofascists, Christo-fascists, Christians in name only. I like that one. I call them chinos, Christians in name. Some are brown, some are white, most are some shade of beige. A lot of them are irregular, chinos. Uh, blaspheming bubba's, grab them by the pussy evangelicals. Love to know what we should call these people. But here's the deal. Women, these people that pretend to be Christian and run our country... They keep telling us what's in store for you if they win at the ballot box. Now, if you had children via in vitro fertilization, these people think you're a murderer. Nationally, about 2% of births a year in this country involve in vitro fertilization. That is, as you smart people know, the process where the multiple eggs are harvested and fertilized and implanted to create a pregnancy. IVF is responsible for almost 100,000 babies born every year, according to the CDC. And IVF was developed after Roe v. Wade became the law in 1973. Embryos have been usually, historically for the past half century, treated like private property. And people can implant them, give them away, or if they're not going to be used, they are destroyed without consequence. We've been watching this debate for a long time. And IVF advocates have been warning us for years these decisions like what we're going to talk about now might happen if the Supreme Court got rid of Roe v. Wade. And now they've done it. The Federal Department of Health and Human Services estimated in 2020 that there are at least 600,000 frozen embryos in storage in this country. The National Embryo Donation Center said that number could be about one million. Between 2013 and 2016, in the beautiful state of Alabama, Three sets of parents did in vitro, hoping that they could have a baby. And some of the embryos for these three couples were implanted into the patient's bodies and they had babies and were very happy for them. Others were placed in a cryogenic nursery. That's what they call it, at the Center for Reproductive Medicine. And they kept them frozen until further notice. And as you know, you can defrost an embryo years from now. You know why? Because it's not a baby. And if you did that with a baby... You'd be a horrible person, but an embryo, it's not a baby, so you can freeze it and leave it frozen for many years. But in 2020, someone in the hospital somehow got into the fertility clinic through an unsecured doorway and got access to this freezer. And this guy took the embryos out and they were very cold, so he dropped them and the embryos were destroyed. Okay, now lean in because this part concerns your country. These three sets of parrots were very upset. They had every right to be. So they sued the Center for Reproductive Medicine because they've been paying to have their embryos frozen in case they need them someday. And they sued the group that oversees the center, the Mobile, Mobile Infirmary Association. And they said this hospital was negligent and it led to the destruction of our embryos and it violated Alabama's wrongful death of a minor act. Hmm. It's already kind of sus how someone got in there to destroy these embryos but now they were suing the hospital for killing babies. Their argument was that life begins at conception, so the hospital killed babies. And the hospital asked the courts to reject the lawsuit because embryos aren't babies. If I am holding a live baby and a frozen embryo, one in each hand, and I drop them both at the same time, which one will sane people try to catch? You follow? Okay. So the hospital said no no this law only applies to people and the circuit court judge said in her decision in april two years ago that a frozen embryo is not a minor child and that will not do in alabama and as you probably heard the republican alabama supreme court has just ruled that frozen embryos qualify as people they are considered children under state law now (laughs) Our dumb is getting scary. IVF has been in the crosshairs of the anti-abortion movement for a long time. And this imperils anyone who wants to try to have a baby through in vitro fertilization in the state of Alabama. The justices went to this anti-abortion language in the Alabama Constitution, and they ruled that an 1872 state law that allows parents to sue over the death of a minor child applies to all unborn children, regardless of their location. Justice J. Mitchell wrote in the majority ruling on Friday, unborn children are children, without exception, based on the developmental stage. Folks, little riddle here. Do you know why embryos can be frozen and babies can't? Because embryos aren't babies! Frozen embryos are people. Uh, frozen migrants are not. You following? This is right-wing Christian morality here. The plaintiffs in the Alabama case had undergone IVF. It led to the creation of the embryos. Some of them led to healthy babies, but they were paying the keep. But now they're entitled their they're refund for their investment. Absolutely. And here on the show, we tried to reach out to frozen embryos to get comment, but they weren't available because they're not children. and They can't talk. They're not people. This is the chief justice of the Supreme Court of Alabama quoting the Bible for his decision recognizing frozen embryos as children. Chief Justice Tom Parker. Yes, he has the same name as the con man who ruined Elvis. Colonel Tom Parker issued his concurring opinion. (laughs) And he talked about the meaning of the phrase, the sanctity of unborn life in the Alabama Constitution. This guy's a good friend of Roy Moore, the pedophile and Alabama Supreme Court chief justice who was twice removed from office because of misconduct. Judge Parker said, even before birth, all human beings bear the image of God and their lives cannot be destroyed without effacing his glory. They're pro-death penalty, just so you know. Uh, Let me read down. Here he goes full three, Theocrat. The people of Alabama have declared the public policy of the state to be that an unborn human life is sacred. We believe that each human being, from the moment of his conception, is made in the image of God, created by him to reflect his likeness. It is as if the people of Alabama took what has spoken to the prophet Jeremiah and applied it to every unborn person in the state. Jeremiah 1, 1.5, one of my favorites, when God says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. They like to quote that line out of context. What that line means is that's God talking directly to Jeremiah, saying, you are destined to be a prophet. It is not God saying criminalize abortion. It is not God saying punish poor women with greater poverty. It is not God saying the freaking government should have the power to force rape victims to be impregnated against their will by their rapist. And Jeremiah is not God saying in vitro fertilization is a bad thing. And the justice capped it out by saying, Finally, the doctrine of the sanctity of life is rooted in the sixth commandment. You shall not murder Exodus 20. The only problem with that is that um, that's the Jewish Bible and Judaism does not ban abortion. Moses does not ban abortion. The Jews of Moses' time did not ban abortion. In fact, if you keep reading Exodus one chapter later, Exodus 21, God asserts if two guys are fighting and strike a pregnant woman and she miscarries, You pay a fine because a fetus is property. But if two guys are fighting and they strike a pregnant woman and the woman dies, you pay with your life. Because in God's eye, a woman's life has more value than a fetus, which is property. They haven't read the Bible, folks. They're not in favor of the Bible. Now... IVF advocates are horrified by this. They say it's going to have far-reaching consequences for millions of Americans trying to get pregnant. It's going to probably end most IVF work in Alabama. And the Medical Association of the State of Alabama wrote a brief to the court and they said the increased exposure to wrongful death liability as advocated by the appellants would at best substantially increase the costs associated with IVF. Parents pay to store unused embryos. Sometimes embryos are destroyed or donated for research if there are genetic problems or if they're likely to develop normally, if they're unlikely to develop normally in utero. Requiring fertility clinics to store all unused embryos forever would push up the cost for patients. So what does this mean? I have questions. Because it is terrified terrifying news for the one in six people who are impacted by infertility so does this destroy the chance for infertile couples to use ivf in alabama are people with frozen embryos required to implant every single one of them or will they face murder charges if they don't what happens to the unused embryos in storage hmm can authorities order them to be implanted into unwilling people Uh, can they bring child abuse charges if you keep embryos in storage what happens if a doctor implants embryos And they don't develop into babies. Is that doctor guilty of murder? Since frozen embryos are now people, will you give them social security numbers? If a fertilized egg is frozen for 18 years, does it have a right to vote? If a fertilized egg is frozen for 21 years, does it have a right to buy beer? Is a shelf full of frozen embryos legally a preschool in Alabama? What happens to Alabama inheritance law? I mean, what happens to tort law? What happens now that every person in Alabama is nine months older than the date on their birth certificate? What about miscarriages? Will every miscarriage have to be reported with death certificates now? I mean, Alabama, you better start hiring some more people for your public records departments because they're going to get busy. Urgent care, OBGYN office. Doctors will have to certify every death. Women, are they going to be charged with child abuse if they drink or smoke or do anything unhealthy when they're pregnant? If embryos are humans, does that mean we can freeze the justices on the Alabama Supreme Court and expect the same results when we thaw them? And here's a real question. Seriously, if someone had embryos frozen in Alabama, can they deduct them as dependents on their tax return? I mean, it's the law now, right? Someone's going to try to do it. People are going to start claiming frozen embryo as dependents for tax write-offs. Will every miscarriage be investigated for possible manslaughter? I mean, every miscarriage. That's not for a rich white chick. I have another question. If frozen embryos are people in Alabama, does that mean everyone trying to do IVF can have life insurance policies on all the frozen embryos? So every time an embryo fails to implant, ka-ching, ka-ching. And if all the embryos that are frozen, what, what if they're all in Texas and the grid fails? Does that mean we can charge Greg Abbott with mass murder? I want to give you a reminder. Alabama, the state that's doing this, ranks number three nationally. In the highest rate of infant mortality. It's a state where 44 out of every 100,000 kids die before getting out of their teens. 30 out of every 100,000 kids nationally. But in Alabama, 44 out of every 100,000. If you think a frozen embryo is a child, you're not a good Christian. You're a lunatic. Frozen embryos should not have more rights than women. And women, I can promise you one thing, the frozen embryos will not be showing up to vote But you can. This is all about imposing religious beliefs that have nothing to do with Jesus on millions of people who don't follow them. This ruling violates the First Amendment. And again, remember, around half of all fertilized eggs die and are lost or aborted spontaneously, usually before the woman knows she's pregnant. The justice writes, even before birth, all human beings bear the image of God and their lives cannot be destroyed without effacing his glory. This is the same exact godless double talk and jive blaspheming Bubba Supreme Alabama court that recently allowed a human being to be murdered by nitrogen hypoxia, which is experimental. It's never been tried on humans. And this Supreme Court said, yes, the government may murder a person with this method, even though Jesus actually spoke against the death penalty, never mentioned abortion. It's the same Alabama, where lower income families with school aged kids now can't get help from the federal government paying for their groceries this summer. You know why? Because Governor Kay Ivey didn't feel like it. Alabama families are going to miss out on $65 million in federal aid designed to help feed children over summer break. <laughs> K.I.V. decided the poorest of the poor in her state didn't need that help. This is at a time when we're seeing over 300 reproductive health researchers are begging the Supreme Court to follow the science when they hear the arguments on Mifepristone because a reality show racist landlord clown is trying to ban the drug used in medication abortion. The same clown was reported in The New York Times said privately he will back a ban on abortions after 16 weeks. That's an abortion ban, folks. Yeah, but 16, that's an abortion ban. Only after 60, wait, no, you're backing an abortion ban. Biden just has to come out and say, I don't back an abortion ban. I mean, I, I, I never thought I'd see our country descend into such ignorance, such meanness. But I always knew there were people here that wanted it to. And this is the Republican regenda, my friends. And they are counting on this country to elect a Republican president so they can appoint younger, more radical, more racist, more backwards, fake Christian judges. This is going to end IVF in Alabama. People who are suffering from infertility now will have no access. It's a very scary time to be a woman or a medical professional. But I leave you with this, my right-wing Judeo-Christian friends. If you'd actually read the New Testament, you couldn't support Trump. But if I ask you to chop down an oak tree and bring it here, and you bring me an acorn, show me where in your holy book it says those two things are one and the same. We want to know what you guys think. We're at 866-997-4748. We'll be back in just a moment with Mark Alicia from Raw Story. This is SiriusXM.
1: Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders.
4: Friends, I hope you'll join me on my audio podcast, Justice Matters. We talk about not only the legal issues of the day, but we also talk about the need to reform ethics in our government. Here's one example, the oath of office. You know the one. I do solemnly swear to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Let's add 22 words to that oath. Quote. And I will promptly report any instances of crime and or corruption by government officials and employees, of which I become aware. Friends, our democracy is worth fighting for. Join us in this fight. Because justice matters. Look for Justice Matters wherever you ordinarily find your podcasts.
3: Welcome back. We've been talking for a long time about what could be the possible avenues by which Donald Trump uh, does not become the next president. Now, I still think the simplest and most direct and most likely one is he runs and loses and Biden beats him again. However, there's an well, there's not an infinite number of possibilities. Actually, our next guest has really done the work and there's really excluding like aliens coming down. Really, only there's 11 ways Donald Trump does not become president. Some are remote, some are quite likely. All of it's fascinating, and it's one of the most enjoyable pieces about the selection I've read in quite a while. Now, you probably know Mark Alicia's work. He's an investigative reporter for Raw Story based in Indiana. He's one of the three reporters who broke the Larry Nassar USA Gymnastics story for the Indianapolis Star. And that reporting, which has been in the Netflix documentary Athlete A, won many, many awards. He's been on CNN and ESPN and NPR, uh, but his new piece with the team at raw story is 11 ways. Donald Trump does not become president. Mark Alicia, welcome to Sirius XM. And thank you for really going to the time to go through every conceivable scenario that will allow us to see Donald Trump fail for a second straight time. Welcome. Well,
0: thank you, John. You know, from the previous segment, I really think you could have tried harder to get uh,
3: comment from the frozen embryos. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 the only problem with that is they're 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 not people, so they're really hard to oh, track down. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> try and keep okay. I'm, I'm over here, that lonely group of people who've actually read the New Testament. So, yeah, um, it's pretty <laughs> insane. And I think it speaks to the most likely way donald trump doesn't become president which is people haven't forgotten dobbs and they're mad and they vote him out uh they and they vote Biden back in but you really you really did the work on this piece i'm i'm deeply impressed some of it's a bit fanciful and some of it's really really penetrating can i just ask how did this piece come to be was this your idea to to actually go through every hypothetical that could happen
0: no it was uh, uh my editor you um Dave Leventhal and uh, uh, my colleague, uh, uh, Alexandria, and uh, uh, we worked on this together and made it happen.
3: Well, let me ask you, um, the most obvious one, the top one is Trump loses the Republican primary on votes, which doesn't seem very likely but it is possible i mean he could get a conviction from alvin bragg and and suddenly we could see nikki haley cleaning up in the last states isn't it true that say the california primary is a winner take all right uh i'm i'm not sure about that but um sure uh
0: something could happen that would uh turn the election um i don't think it's going to happen but it's it's certainly possible yeah I mean, look at all these um, all the court cases. I mean, it's it's um, it, it's fraught with um, issues for Trump, but, you know, we'll see.
3: We'll see. What do you think is is likely? I mean, you one of the possibilities you guys lay out, is that trump loses the gop nomination in a in a floor fight i thought for a long time we might see a contested convention and i thought that's what glenn youngkin was being groomed for but um after the voters of virginia saw otherwise i i, I consider that possibility to be a lot more remote as well what wh- yeah, what do you think I, is I, a, a likely way go ahead please. i
0: yeah I, I i'm not sure about a floor fight um i think he's uh he and his people trump and his people of Kind of figured out um all of the various rules this time with a more sophisticated campaign staff and they won't they absolutely won't um let let that happen i i don't know i i wonder if maybe if he's in prison and maybe somebody uh they invoke the 25th amendment that he's not fit uh that he to to serve And Mm -hmm. maybe that's the most likely way. I don't know. I mean, I I realize people out there, you know, instead of 11 ways might lose, you know, they're hoping for 111 ways. But uh,
3: the reality is uh,
0: there probably aren't many.
3: I mean, it's it's very possible. I mean, you know, if if he was somehow elected and appointed a cabinet. Um, it is conceivable that that they could exercise the twenty fifth amendment before he even starts again. but he'd have to win, right? He'd have to he'd have to win to have them do that with him. It almost seems like the Fourteenth Amendment, which is going before the Supreme Court, uh, is more likely well, i
0: I have a hard time believing that the Supreme Court will um, make any decision that will block Trump from being able to. Assume the presidency, so um, I, personally, I discount that.
3: But yeah. um, I don't know. Uh, it's, it, I mean, sure, it's possible. It's possible, but I don't. I'm with you. I don't really see the Supreme Court actually doing that. Um, And I don't think it's a very good strategy for Democrats to pursue. One of the more unlikely scenarios you lay out is that Trump could accept a pardon promise with the understanding that he would quit the race. I I kind of wondered if Nikki Haley was fishing for that when she came out over the weekend and said that uh, he's committed all these crimes, but she'd pardon him anyway.
0: I think Nikki Haley's um, hanging in there for 2028 or... Uh, in the hope that okay, right. uh, something happens to Trump uh, with his health, you know, that's which is also of-
3: likely, isn't it? I mean, I mean, that's also I've been saying this for a long time His his health doesn't seem to be great. I don't wish him to get ill or, or, or get sick in any way, but that is another possibility. We seem to only talk about it with the other guy. But Donald Trump is yeah. a fellow who's, um you know, overweight and likes to stare into eclipses. Yeah, yeah,
0: um, yeah. Sure. Um, <laughs> you don't know uh, what what'll happen uh, uh, with the guy, but uh, that that might be the most likely scenario out of all these
3: eleven. My God, I mean, you know, we hope that there's no assassination. I don't think he's going to flee the country, although I'm sure there's suitcases stocked with cash somewhere. But you also. Pose a very interesting question: Could Trump serve as president while set to serve time? I'm a big fan of this conversation, and you know, I think all the time about Bobby Sands running for parliament while he was in jail as an IRA member. What has your research turned up? I mean, there's there's well, there's precedent that presidents don't have full legal immunity. You point out the Paula Jones, Bill Clinton case, but could Trump serve as president with a with with conviction and time behind bars?
0: Well, yeah. I mean that's that's what we found. And um of course there is precedent for running for president behind bars. Uh Eugene right. Debs mm-hmm. right here uh, from uh Indiana, Terre Haute, uh, Indiana, did just that. Uh he had campaign uh, pins uh Uh, Something like elect prisoner number 905723. Uh, So it's it's not out of the realm of possibility.
3: And and it it is tell me if this is conceivable that, that Trump would be able to serve as president and then he would have to serve any prison time after he left office. I mean, that that conceivably could happen if the Supreme Court gave their nod to it
0: that's one of the yeah sure that's that's one of the possibilities i uh, again i i mean i i see that as kind of uh unlikely but it is it is out there it is a possibility i don't think it will
3: happen <laughs> i i really enjoyed reading the piece and it seems like you know that some of these are very very far-fetched while still remotely possible I mean, how do you see this election playing out? How do you see the next several months all the way to November being? Do you think that Donald Trump will be the nominee and that we will come down to voting between these two old men in November? Uh, regrettably,
0: yes, I do see, see that uh, as, as what will happen um, unless, as we were talking about, um, Trump's health declines and somebody else
3: uh, moves in. Whew. Okay. Well, we want to know what you guys think. We are at 866-997-4748, 866-997-GRIT. Do you think, uh, final question, the million dollar question, assuming it's coming down to just Biden and Trump, and I I think you're right. uh, Who do you see winning this thing? Do you think that Donald Trump can become more popular than he was last time? Or does this just end with his being further discredited by losing again?
0: I I think that uh, just in a a Republican primary situation, he's unbeatable. But in a general election, that's much different. And I think he will lose again. But what the uh, fallout from that will be uh, scares me, frankly
3: in terms of how the kind of unrest we might see as, as he parades around saying he was robbed again. Yes, precisely. Yeah. I'm pretty terrified of that as well. Mark Alicia, I thank you so much for joining us this evening. Once again, the piece is in raw story. It's terrific. It's called 11 ways Donald Trump does not become president. What is the best way, sir, for our listeners to follow you and keep up with all your work? Well,
0: I'm, uh, uh, X, formerly Twitter, at Mark Alicia, M-A-R-K-A-L-E-S-I-A.
3: Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us. I think you're right with what with your uh, ultimate guess, but I, I really did enjoy reading all these possible scenarios. Thanks to you and your team for writing the piece. We thank have you, to Jack. take a thank you, sir. Come back anytime. We gotta take a very quick break. When we come back, we will get to your calls at 866-997-4748. figure lending LLC DBA figure equal opportunity lender NMLS 1717824 terms and conditions apply visit figure.com for more information for licensing information go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org and welcome back this is Sirius XM progress at 866-997-4748 866-997-GRIT I am so pleased to welcome this next guest to our show. I have really admired his work, and I finally just decided, you know what, let me tra- let me track this man down and see if I can drag him into being on the program. We've had a lot of great theologians uh, and religious writers and religious figures on this show over the years, but no one has the resu- resume that Doctor Reverend Dr. Jeff Hood has. Now, we've talked a lot on the show. If you're a listener of this program, you've heard of Kenneth Smith. He's the death row inmate who became the first human in the world to be murdered by a government with nitrogen gas this past January 25th. It's the first time anyone has been legally given a fatal dose of pure nitrogen gas. It was given to Mr. Smith via a strap-on mask after he was duly convicted. And Dr. Jeff Hood was the spiritual advisor to Kenneth Smith when he was executed. He spent time with them. He was there in the actual room that night. He was present at this execution. He has been present at many executions. Reverend Dr. Jeff Hood is a priest. He's a theologian. He's an activist who lives and works in Little Rock, Arkansas. He serves as the founding dean of the New Theology School and as the convener of Clergy United Against the Death Penalty. He's the author of over 70 books. You may have read his stuff in the past anywhere from Dallas Morning News to Huffington Post, and you may have seen him on NBC, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, or NPR are he is a radical mystic and a prophetic voice to a closed society and he's also as theologians go pretty fucking fearless it is a real pleasure and honor to welcome Reverend Dr. Jeff Hood to Sirius XM hello sir
5: yeah thank you so much for having me tonight I uh, was going to tell you that uh, when I told my wife I was coming on this show she said, is that the guy from Americans' Funniest Home Videos? And I said, yes. And she is upstairs putting the kids to bed, but she is with us in spirit, brother.
3: Well, give her my best <laughs> wishes. Yes, uh, I always wanted to be a person who lived many different lives, and it seems like that's sort of been your life as well. You've had a a very interesting ministry and a very interesting long and winding road that that led you to the the place you're in right now, uh, and I want to ask all about that. But I I'd, I'd like to just begin by talking about the experience that you just shared with this 58 year old man, Kenneth Smith. Again, folks, we're not claiming Mr. Smith didn't commit the crimes he was sentenced for. He was guilty of these crimes, but um, I, I want to ask you about your your ministry, Reverend, and and I want to ask how did you first come to know. Mr. Smith, what was your relationship like with him and and how did it evolve?
5: Sure. I mean, I think that uh, one of the the great blessings of my life is that I am a child of the South. I am someone who uh, was raised and reared in a conservative evangelical Southern context, which, uh, you know, very appropriately talked about justice and, um, you know, I guess, holding people responsible for their actions. Now, of course, it failed on the grace and mercy side of things. And uh, that, I guess, ultimately came later. And I, But, you know, it's interesting, John, that this work comes out of um, a connection to um, the LGBT community um, in that I saw uh, the LGBT community so oppressed in the Southern Baptist context that I came out of
1: that I yeah. began
5: to uh, realize that, hey, you know, I, I, that's not who I want to be. I don't want to be the guy, you know, holding uh, hold. the cross, screaming at pride. Like, I don't want to be that guy.
3: Let me tell you and, about the Catholic. Let me tell you about the Catholic sometime with that, Reverend.
5: Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I had a moment that was a, sort of a road to Damascus, a, sort of a Mount of Transfiguration, Epiphany type experience. My Southern Baptist mentor, who uh, I loved and adored, who in many ways was the incarnation, the very presence of Jesus for me, on his his deathbed, I was uh, working on my uh, first theology degree, and on his deathbed, he calls me to his side. He had lung cancer, wife and kids in the next room over, and he tells me that he had lived his life as a closeted gay man. And when that happened, it was almost like all of those, um, you know, just anger, vengeance, all of those sorts of things, sort of went out the window because all of a sudden, uh, everything that I was certain about um, had just come out of the closet, if you
3: will. Yeah.
5: And so, yeah. and so, and so as time went on, it, I, I found myself in this space of never wanting to be that oppressor, that marginalizer, again, never wanting to be anywhere except to be found with the least of these. And so as that work has uh, progressed and, you know, done all this uh, BLM work, immigration work, and, you know, all different types of, uh, I guess, social justice actions, I was drawn to, um, I guess, death row and death rows in different states. And... In the course of that, I consistently found something that uh, was just utterly shocking, and that is myself. So often we think that these folks who commit these horrible crimes are so so other. There's something completely different than us. We don't expect to go to such a place and find connection. Um, And I think that that's sometimes uh, what, religious folk or people who claim uh, all sorts of uh, traditions and paths they try to other people based on that yeah. path or that tradition yeah and and i think that i think that i proceeded in this space of um, going to death row when i first did uh first started doing this work about 12 years ago i went with this idea of I'm going to bring love to death row and I'm going to do this. And we all sort of get on our moral high horses. Was this
3: for Troy Davis, sir? Uh,
5: So, yeah, I did. That was kind of the first moment that really pulled me into the movement uh, was the Troy Davis campaign. I was actually a student at Emory. Um, I was doing another theological degree at Emory in Atlanta, and I was sort of drawn into that moment. And at the expense of taking up too much time with these anecdotes, I have one more. Good. Please. I have, I have one more that I wanted to share. But when I first got involved, um, you know, we all had those I am Troy Davis t shirts. It's a beautiful slogan I am Troy Davis. This connection with this guy um, who was uh, convicted of killing Officer uh, McPhail there in Savannah. And yes. there were a lot of questions as to what actually happened, on and on and on. And, and so I should I,
3: point out, both Pope Benedict and Jimmy Carter called for clemency for this man. It was w- it was a big,
5: It was a worldwide yeah. thing. And my grandparents, my maternal grandparents, very conservative. Uh, my grandfather was very accustomed to using the N-word around the house, um, just all sorts of, of awfulness. Every ist-ism you can think of was represented at that house. And, you know, I came in wearing my I am Troy Davis T-shirt to their house. And I thought, you know, I'm going to take this, you know, mega stand. I'm going to stand my ground in this space and show them or whatever. And I walk in and my grandmother, she starts bawling, crying. And I couldn't figure out what was going on. It was, you know, just very shocking. Well, my grandmother, in the midst of her tears, she said, your shirt and I thought, oh, my God, you know, this is making her that upset. And then she said, no, my brother. And it hit me when she said that her brother, who was injured in World War II and died shortly thereafter, his name was Troy Davis. Oh. And so there comes this sort of really human moment that took place there that it kind of opened the door to a longer conversation with uh, with her about the Troy Davis case and what was going on in that moment. But it, it made me realize that um, if we look for opportunities to have these conversations, these spaces of, of pop-up grace, if you will, then, then, then these sorts of things can happen. And so what I've found is, is that I've gone from sort of that moment that Troy Davis in my grandparents' house moment, but also the Troy Davis moment there at the prison, me and my wife had just gotten married. We were right across the highway uh, there in Jackson, Georgia, when uh, when the execution happened. And I will never forget, John, everybody, you know, I was an Obama kid. And so, you know, 2008, like I'm so excited about President Obama and candidate Obama at that point. Yes, we can, hope and change, you know, I was down. I was so down and I'll never forget that night being there in Jackson. You had all these students from Morehouse and Spellman and the Atlanta University Center. Nice. And, and everybody was saying, you know, surely President Obama is going to do something. Surely, you know, President Obama is going to step in. Now the, there's a lot of questions as to whether or not he could have done anything at all. But my point is, I remember when he was executed, um, just thinking to myself that my sort of, Um, just desire to implant myself in electoral politics was over. And so I I find my, it seems like with every step, whether it's with my grandparents figuring out that there can be these human connections that are beyond sort of uh, the political space, whether it's, you know, the spaces of activism that are beyond the political space, it seems like getting to Kenny, sorry, it's taken me a, a little bit of a swerve to get there. But it seems like when I meet these guys, I don't meet them as Republicans or Democrats. I don't meet them as, um, you know, really, I don't meet them as murderers. I don't even meet them as various races and all these types of things. I meet them as human beings.
3: I get it. And
5: and when you meet someone in that state um, as a human being, you begin to, uh, you know, to to want to hear where they are. And it's almost like uh, that moment when Jesus is up on the cross and uh, we are, Jesus, you know, screams out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This lonely moment on the cross. When we meet each other in that lonely moment,
3: we begin to find ourselves not so lonely anymore. Absolutely. That's what the faith is supposed to be about. You, I mean, and, and... Yeah. There's so much you've said that I think so many folks listening are going to relate to because, you know, they like to say the largest growing religious group in America are Mormons. I think the largest growing religious group (laughs) are are people who were raised religious and now consider themselves spiritual because they're so turned off to these grotesque hypocrisies. I mean, for me, I, I realized I probably wasn't a real Catholic because I couldn't reconcile the treatment of women with what I read in the Bible. And I realized that I couldn't reconcile myself with uh, uh, most right-wing Christianity when I was 13 and understood that homophobia... I I was a teenage homophobe until I realized I knew gay people and that homophobia was an insult to the God I was raised to believe in and that it's not technically possible to follow the teachings of Jesus and be bigoted against gay people. You just, you can't, if you read the Jesus parts, you can't do those two things. But I'll tell you this, Reverend, for myself as a young person, my first real spiritual awakening that I was in the wrong tribe um, was over the death penalty.
1: I I think Mm -hmm. I was around
3: 11 when I realized that it was the ultimate rejection of the values of Jesus. He overturns eye for an eye in Sermon on the Mount. He, He- Stops an execution. He says, only the sinless may execute and commands us to forgive 70 times 7. Now, even atheists, I got to say, you don't have to believe all this is literal fact or believe in Jesus as literal person. It's what's in the book these folks have agreed to. It's what's in the book Christians have agreed to. And to me, there is no more stark evidence of someone completely using Jesus for a cheap, flimsy prop Mm -hmm. then supporting the death penalty and waving your Jesus around while actively opposing his teachings. I mean, if there was no death penalty, Jesus would still be here. So we've had Sister Helen (laughs) Prejean on the show. I I think you're exactly right. And your ministry is is rock solid. But I want to ask you about the second death row inmate you met. Because from what I've read, when you met Carrie Ellen, it was a bit of a challenge. To find oh, that man. humanity there at first, oh, when from what I've read about Mr. Ellen and why he went to jail, it, it wasn't exactly like one of these stories where you, no. you you see the humanity right away. This man did some horrible things and it seemed like it was a real challenging spiritual experience for you.
5: Oh, man. You know, it's uh, it's it's, you know, t- 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 two things. One is I love to talk about how the queer Jesus saved my soul. I'm so thankful for the LGBT community in America, the wider queer community in America, because I think if there is any group of people that is saving spirituality for all of us, making spirituality meaningful, taking it to the streets, it is, again, the queer community, the wider LGBT community. With that said, I wanted to uh, to shift into Carrie really quick. Please. So Carrie Allen is a gentleman who's on death row in uh, Texas. He is a suspected um, and convicted in some ways uh, killer of children, uh, serial killer of children. And he is known for um, raping and murdering uh, children. And he also is known for dressing as a clown. And
3: um, arguably the most horrible Kafka esque wretched soul you could meet <laughs> right. on death row,
5: right? And when you go and encounter him on death row, he comes out uh, trying to like use like ketchup and various things that they can get a hold of to make himself look like a clown. Um, it's very, very, very disturbing. So we sit down to talk. Uh, this was a number of years ago, and we began to just converse about life families. I mean, the same thing that, um, you know, you converse with, 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 all sorts of people, um, you know, you first meet. And so we get to the end and I said, Carrie, is there anything that I can do for you that would be, um, helpful or encouraging for you? And he said, yes, you can uh, give me a picture of your children. And it was, it was a, it was like a, <laughs> It's one of those things, I feel like sometimes you get punched in the face so hard, it, it bloodies your eyes, it, it yeah. causes you to have stars, you just can't see. And yeah. the only thing that uh, I knew to do at that moment was to say, um, you know, I'll pray for you. That that was BS. It was absolutely, I mean, that's the only thing I knew to say, but even you were insane. horrified. Yeah, I was horrified. And of course, I got to the car and I was like, man, I, like... You know, I, I, it was almost as if I felt like I, I needed to execute the guy myself um, yeah. because I was that taken aback and that horrified. But as time has gone on, I found, um, you know, an ability to pray for Carrie and uh, to interact with folks like him. I mean, you know, one of the other things that uh, I've talked about is I had another guy who um, was very interested in me sending pictures of my wife
3: to him yes and, please
5: and that was uh incredibly disturbing but but john i'll tell you one of the crazier moments that i i find myself thinking about a lot is uh there was a guy named richard masterson who was executed a number of years ago in texas that i worked with and uh, richard masterson was really psychotic very very difficult to even interact with but at the time i was living uh, in dallas and that was when there was a rash of uh, trans women of color being murdered in Dallas. Mm-hmm. There was a, mm-hmm. like, uh, a number of trans women, and it, you know that was taking place all over the country. And so um, I was organizing and leading um, movements and moments and vigils and marches and whatnot in Dallas to bring attention to what was happening. Well, Richard Masterson was this um, killer of trans women, serial killer of trans women. And um, he's been he was convicted of one. There was suspicion of others. Um, But, you know, one of the things that he told me was um, he said, Jeff, you ain't never seen as good a you know what as a new you know what. Um, And oh, my. And and so just constantly, you know, not just just a. just trying to turn it up always trying to
3: push you away and provoke you and prove to themselves the worst thing about themselves at the same time
5: right and and so you're you know i was living in this juxtaposition where i'm trying to work with him and he's saying what are you doing all that stuff up there in dallas for and i'm trying to love these folks in dallas and they're saying what are you doing this for and it it has you know it was in that moment where i realized that that Sort of forsakenness, that sort of uh, solitude that we often find ourselves in when we try to live morally and try to live ethically um, was a space that I was going to have to get used to if I was going to continue doing this work. And go ahead.
3: Well, I'm very curious. I'm sure you encounter a lot of very differing responses, especially in the South. I'm half Southern myself. I know how it is having these conversations. And I have no doubt you've had plenty of Christian folk express horror that you would minister to the worst of the worst on death row. But I'm wondering, have you had the experience of seeing minds and hearts changed in the course of your ministry, of seeing folks who were before in favor of giving the state the power to murder people? And then they've realized it goes against the tenets of their faith or they've just realized it's wrong and they don't want to be a part of their taxes funding this.
5: Right. You know, it's interesting, um, and I can go into Kenny's execution in a second and what that was like, but I will say that one of the more interesting things that happened uh, when Kenny was executed is that the the victim's family had been uh, very much calling for the execution to happen, very much wanting the execution to happen. And um, one of the things that they said, now, of course, they didn't come out and say they regretted it. It wasn't anything like that, but they did say how they spoke to how awful it was and they described it as watching a fish out of water and just how um they didn't want to see that basically they felt like something had been done to them that they didn't want done and yeah. now that, that that's they were not supposed to murder right and that's not the like <laughs> you know road to damascus heaven's open heaven's opening up kind of moment but at the same time it also speaks to the fact that there was some humanity there there was some level of humanity yeah. that uh, that touched you know one of the things that i think is most disgusting uh about the death penalty and it's what it's most disgusting about a lot of uh, of what happens in our society whether that's you know senators sending billions of dollars overseas for people to destroy each other and never having to see the consequences or whether that includes people sending military, you know, the military all over the world and never having to see the consequences. I mean, we live in a society that is so detached from consequences. Yeah. And so, and so all of these Southern governors, I mean, you saw this just today with Jeff Landry in Louisiana, they passed a nitrogen hypoxia uh, bill this afternoon out of committee. And, um, and what they're saying is, oh, it's not that bad. Oh, it's, you know, it's it's, it's textbook. It, you know, right after um, Kenney's execution, they came out and they said um, everything went according to plan, which is absolutely.
3: That's a lie.
5: Yeah, it's, it's an absolute lie. But, but again, you see all of these southern governors getting in their bully pulpits and saying, we want more executions. And my daughter, of all people, she's eight years old. And I was telling her about all of this and we were trying to have a, you know, a teaching moment. And she said, she said, Daddy, if they want to do, you know, these executions, if they want to suffocate people, if they want a, um, you know, electric chair, all these things, then they should have to do it themselves.
3: I agree. She's
5: right. And, you know, I think that that says a lot about this sort of um you know kind of chicken hawk mentality yeah. Everybody. I everybody's juries,
3: haw- i think the sentencing juries should have to be present for the execution as I, well th- I, I
5: think would- that that's a, i mean i think that that's an absolute uh, if a judge and juries had to be present for executions we would never see another execution again
3: If they were on TV, I think every execution, if tax dollars are funding it, needs to be broadcast. I think if people could see it, then we'd all be against it. But, I mean, you mentioned the the nitrogen hypoxia. Now, in the year 2000, the American Veterinary Association, as you know, I'm sure, came out against ever using this to euthanize animals because it was too cruel. And my understanding as the days were leading up to the murder of Kenneth Smith with this gas was that if you put someone in a chamber and fill the chamber with the gas, then you can kill them that way. Anything else runs the risk of gruesome torture. Absolutely. They did not execute Kenneth Smith with nitrogen hypoxia in a chamber, did they, Reverend? How did they decide no, to kill him?
5: they did it... Uh- so, when I walked into the chamber, and I'll, John, I'll take you through the whole thing. When I um, when I walked into the chamber, Kenny was wearing a mask that was from the top of his head to under his chin, and it had a plastic glass uh, sort of plate on the front. And it was um, it was one of these things that it it very much looked like a firefighter's mask, and it very much looked like it had a um, it had a hose coming out. That would look sort of like um, one of these, um, you know, like a accord- plastic accordion plumbing. Sounds like um, the kind
3: of thing that could easily become loose or, or, uh, right, or right, right, not right. tight. Yeah,
5: <laughs> Right. And I mean, it looked like something that was constructed in someone's basement, not something that w- a state, you know, was investing a lot of money so in. So air to-
3: could easily get in and slow yeah. down the murder process.
5: Right. Right. So so this thing is tight, so tight on his face that his skin is bunched up, you know, along the seal. So it looks like his face is being sort of compressed into this tiny spot. And I. um, I went up to him um, right when I walked in, I told him I loved him. He told me, thank you. And he, you know, the whole time, I love you. Thank you. Like we were going back and forth. And, um, you know, I just kept telling him. Um, You know, even though we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, we are fearing no evil. And I kept saying that over and over again. Um, And, you know, it it was fascinating in that uh, Kenny was a type of person that uh, he wanted to resist the entire time. And so he decided that he was going to put on a smile and it was almost like he was listening to music because he was bouncing his head up and down and you know that was his way of resisting right and the further we get into um the execution process on the gurney is in the middle of the room on the right you have a corrections officer and on the left you have a corrections officer and then on the um and then on the left, you also have a state official. Well, when the nitrogen, the curtains opened up and everybody was kind of like me. I mean, it was a sh- it was a shocking scene to see someone in a mask like that. Yeah. Uh, it's just not something you would you would see every day.
3: So, I mean, just c- seeing seeing the government killing a guy is not right. something you would of see course. every day. So, of course. yeah, let's um, go on Reverend? And so you've got this mask,
5: and um, then the nitrogen begins to flow. And um, in this moment, he begins to sort of um, turn different colors. Uh, He goes from sort of a a white to maybe a yellow to red, or excuse me, to blue to red. I mean, you start seeing these colors going through his face, and it gets more and more intense to all of a sudden he's rising up, um, pushing against the gurney. The gurney is moving. It's shaking, which, I mean, this is something that's bolted down to the floor that's not supposed to move at all. And right. it's moving back and forth. Um, they said that, uh, they told us before he, we went in there that he would be unconscious in a matter of seconds. And I can tell you, John, that for uh, at least eight to ten minutes, he was heaving back and forth and back and forth and when he heaved his the mask parts of the mask were tied to the gurney to keep him from going too far well what that did was the the front of the mask every time he popped up his face was hitting the front of the mask so it looked like someone slamming their face against a window and and he kept uh there was fluids that kept on coming out of his mouth like uh mucus spit saliva um perhaps vomit i'm still not i mean obviously i wasn't able to get like a of
3: course of course a, of course. Te- a
5: test on everything that was in there but um all of that's hitting the front of the mask and so it starts it's, it's drizzling down in what looks like uh like a waterfall almost right. on the front of the mask and you can see him like spitting and resisting and trying to breathe and those types of things. And, you know, as, as this is happening, um, it's just, just an unbelievable, like I tell people that when I work with these guys, I mean, this was my fifth execution in the last, um, 15 months that I've witnessed. This was by far the most horrible. But one of the things that happens is, is that when I work with these guys, Usually it's the last six to three months of their lives. It's my job to kind of knit my soul together with theirs so that when we go to that execution moment, we can stand together and we can, um, you know, be, I I guess, walk through that valley of the shadow of death together. Yeah. Yeah. And so when all of this is happening, I feel like my soul is just being ripped apart from from Kenny like
3: well you're it, watching a man being tortured as a guinea pig to see if a poison it, it can feels, kill
5: people yeah i mean it was just it's it's so visceral and so intense and um he he is heaving so much that it feels like his head is going to explode i mean it's ballooning it looks like his head is going to almost shoot through the ceiling um i i it, the entire it, I compared it the other day. I said that it's it, the best way of saying it is every part of him was moving every direction all at once. And that's what it felt like. It felt like he was just consistently um, just going in every, exploding in every different direction. So it was so bad that the state official who was in the room. Her name is uh, Cynthia Stewart Riley. She's a uh, She is a regional official with the Alabama Department of Corrections. She had on these high heels, like black, like patent leather, like high heel shoes. She was getting so nervous about what was happening that she kept on tapping her feet. And it sounded like a tap dancer was in the execution chamber because she kept tapping her feet so much. And it just illustrates that she was someone who was intimately involved in developing this whole process. And it was, uh, it was utterly horrific. She knew it. All the witnesses knew it. I mean, there was no way to pretend that this thing went correctly. No, I
3: get it. It's, 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 it's horrifying. And I I have to believe Reverend that in all your experiences, you must've had corrections officers or people who work for the state confide to you privately that this is, barbaric i mean you you must have had people on the inside when they witness it because i don't see how you can witness something like that and still want your tax dollars to fund it
5: well i think that uh you know certainly there are those people and though they are few and far between those people exist but i think that uh, the fact that people are able to do this and go home and kiss their children and go to bed, you know, with their wife or whatever, go to the local bar and get a drink or whatever, is that we as a society has so gone so far down this road of dehumanization that we, you know, it's almost like we, we don't see people. We see, uh, you know, avatars. I think yeah. it's a good way of yeah. saying it. Like we're not encountering people as people. We're encountering them as a commodity. Exactly. And, and I think that when you encounter people as a commodity, then an execution is something to be accomplished. Sure. Not, a, not a human you gotta, being. You've got to see
3: them as, you gotta call them Ill, You got to call these immigrants illegals so people right, don't mind treating right, them like they're right. not people. Reverend Dr. Jeff yeah. Hood, um, um, I have to ask you this because our time grows short. <sighs> and I hope you'll come back because I, I think we've just begun this conversation. I have many, I many more questions that. for you. What is the best way for people listening to this who might be spiritual, might, might be non-believers, but they want to help in some way? How can folks like this begin to get involved in this kind of ministry or in this kind of work? I'm sure you take help from secular people all the time, whether it's your ministry or some larger avenue. Where do you recommend Americans who care begin their journey of activism when it comes to abolition of the death penalty?
5: Sure. I think that's a great question. Um, An organization that I often work uh, together with is Death Penalty Action. Uh, yeah. Death penalty action is this uh, really amazing grassroots organization that is mobilizing um, you know, local people um, to, 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 I guess, encounter this issue, to encounter the death penalty in local ways. Um, I am on their advisory board. I'm not an employee or anything like that of them, but um, they do really amazing work. I mean, every execution, they host a vigil. Um, and they bring people from all over the world together to to pray and engage each other in these horrific moments. Um, I'll also say that, uh, as you well know, uh, my Facebook page, my like public page, uh, Reverend Dr. Jeff Hood, uh, public page is the best way to get in touch with me. Um, and that's how you get, of course, that's how you get in touch with me. That's but, how I um, to, talk to you, yes, yeah, sir. Yeah, I, but I but I think that it's important for people to understand that uh, we are in a very desperate moment. I mean, after this nitrogen hypoxia happened in Alabama, you have state officials saying, it's not that big of a deal, it went great. And that's the sad thing about these executions is as much as I talk about it, there's only a few of us who actually saw it. And what that means is, is that the state is able to tell all these other governors hey this is you know this is a way to be able to execute more people cheaply fastly and so uh, again, today in Louisiana we saw that uh, this has moved That's forward right. and it, it's uh I hope that we can be human human enough, humane enough not to get so excited and to go full headlong into suffocating each other mm-hmm
3: amen reverend dr jeff hood it is a pleasure to have you on the show will you please come back sir i'd love to talk way more about this and i'd like to talk more about what it's like to have one of these vigils because i've never had the pleasure of being at one and i'd I'd like to know what the experience is and and to talk more about your journey we didn't even touch on your jesus is queer stuff and you get a lot of good trouble (laughs) for that so please come back and join us anytime thank you so much thank you
5: very much brother
3: Thanks for everything you do. Quick break. We'll be right back with your calls at 866-997-4748. Well, that was light. (laughs) Time for the dick jokes to come out again. (laughs) Welcome back. Thank you to the Reverend Dr. Jeff Hood. We are at 866-997-4748, 866-997-GRIT. Um, the Biden-Harris campaign have another new ad out. This is A5. This one once again hammers home the topic of abortion rights. Give a listen.
1: I'm an OBGYN in Texas and a mother of three wonderful children. Having this beautiful, messy, chaotic, but wonderful family, it's the joy of my life. I never thought that I would need an abortion for a planned pregnancy, but I did. Two years ago, I became pregnant with a baby I desperately wanted. At a routine ultrasound, I learned that the fetus would have a fatal condition and that there was absolutely no chance of survival in Texas, you are forced to carry that pregnancy. And that is because of Donald Trump overturning Roe v. Wade. The choice was completely taken away. I was to continue my pregnancy, putting my life at risk. It's every woman's worst nightmare, and it was absolutely unbearable. We need leaders that will protect our rights and not take them away. And that's Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. I'm
4: Joe Biden. And I approve this message.
3: What do you think? I mean, I think it's a good ad. I just think it doesn't go far enough. My ad would say, hey, 26,313 women in Texas are pregnant from rape. And 26,313 women in Texas are being forced to be pregnant by their rapist by Donald Trump and Greg Abbott. And then just have Joe Biden come out and say, I won't do that. And there's your ad. We want to know what you guys think. We're at 866-997-4748. Anthony is calling from D.C. Anthony, thanks for waiting on hold. You're on SiriusXM Progress.
2: Hello. Um, how you doing? Um, Good. How are you? I'm all right. That guy who you just had on the reverend, he's uh, pretty interesting. I used to be a correction officer. I didn't call about that. Um, okay. However, However, those guys who I've come across when I went to the other... Facilities where they did have death row,
3: uh-huh. those
2: correction officers, um, they were different. Tell they, me, um, it's just an energy, a aura. they that they, that they, go in and actually do the actual procedures for actually murdering someone. Um, they they were different. They would not, and they say that once you go through it, you'll never be the same again. And you talk to someone. I've been a wolf I've actually. <laughs> Had to do some things in war, and, and, and yeah, what people don't realize is someone being strapped down, and you actually are looking at the life being li- literally taken out of their body. That's yep. different than fighting someone. That's different than that I agree. Killing because you, you're a soldier and that person is opposition. Or, yeah, it's uh, not try- self-defense.
3: It's it's murder. It's yeah. the state murders. Yeah. The state murders people and tells us it's legal.
2: Yeah, yeah, so so uh I, I personally I don't agree with the death penalty. Uh I have my own reasons behind that. I think that the dead yeah, I I have my own reasons.
3: um Well there's many reasons. I mean there's right. many reasons to be against it. Um many, many reasons. You know, the fact that it's uh, anti Jesus, the fact that it's completely racist, the fact that it doesn't work, uh the fact that it's never Correct. been done consistently Absolutely. in this country. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. Um, But Thank I you. wanted to talk, talk about that young Please. lady named Elizabeth. Now. N-
3: named who? I'm said, so sorry. Young lady named. I think, her, I think her name was Elizabeth. Oh, our caller. Yeah, go ahead.
2: Yeah, yeah. She said something. And a lot of times when people say those things, like she's saying, they're blown off and of saying, well, you can't say it like that or you can't do it like that because then they won't listen to you. Okay. I'm still in law enforcement, and I'm a cop. Okay. And I take a job. I take a page out of the uh, late great Joe Madison and uh, even uh, uh, what's it Cigarelli.
3: Uh-huh. I put it where
2: it goes, get it, and I give it, and I give it as good as, as, as they trying to give it to me. And I you know love what? those guys. Tell me, yeah, they they do listen. Yeah, because it's all about standing up to the bully. Because mm-hmm. so that's what these people are, and I work I with people who wear the badge that are bullies. Yep. And, they, and, they, and the reason why they like Trump and people like Trump is not because they themselves are in position of power or money-wise like them. He's simply saying what they want to say and That's doing it. the things that they want to do. And for those people who are that weak-minded, you do have to put them in their place. And you do have to call them out. And you do have to say these things. Hey, you're a racist. Hey. You are Mm. Antichrist. Hey, you are a devil. And and then when you say that and you grab their attention and you break it down to them and you ask them, is this what you're saying to me? Now they have to go into defense mode or either walk. Mm. A lot of times they end up walking off. However, Mm -hmm. they don't come at you anymore like that. And some of them, when you bring it to their attention and you say it to them like that, because in my line of work, we fact finders. Right. 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 I mean, by fact finders is I don't care what anybody says. We go about, okay how we solve a crime is we get the facts we put it together. And this facts that we put it together, this is saying the truth. And this is the story about what actually happened. If that is the case and that is what we do on a daily basis, then tell me why are you falling behind a man who we fight crime against every day? Boom. So when you say. I call them nicety. Yeah. The Democratic Party like to try to have too many niceties and try to say things sweet. George well, Carlin is a comedian, and he said uh, it, should, it should be shell shock. Stop calling yeah. PTSD. He's yeah.
3: right. I know. And, we'll,
2: uh, it, it, and it's too nice. And I, I, I agree. understand and I hear what you're saying by saying you have to weave this magic. No, excuse my language, but fuck that. They don't weave no no magic wand or weave it together. When they talk to us, they give it to us, Rob. Oh,
3: I know, so I know, I back? know. Because I'm ta- because the Democrats' job to win elections is, and you know this, they have to win to win nationally. They have to win over confused white people in seven states who can't decide I who to vote between dis- Trump and and they I have disagree. to disagree. But you know I that's disagree. what it's about. It's no, seven states what swing doing voters. Is- what Go they're ahead. doing is,
2: it's a, and, they, and they have shown it, when the person that's a Democrat is the is the actual true progressive, the true progressive wins every single time. I agree. So
3: what you're yeah. saying
2: is not true. What no, what I'm saying is, is no, no, Anthony.
3: What this, I'm saying is that's what man. Democrats do to try to win elections. You have to be genteel. Oh, what oh, I oh, think people oh, okay. want, what I think people, what I think people really want is authenticity and guts and compassion. I think it's one thing to, yes, you have to have niceties. I'm sorry, but you also have to draw a comparison between yourself and Donald Trump smearing feces on a wall in the corner. But I think people want compassion and guts, and I think it's why Bernie Sanders lit so many people on fire because they want someone who's gonna come out and not bullshit them, not necessarily talk in niceties and tell them something you haven't heard. That's what Donald Trump did for all these white folks. He was lying and it was completely full of shit and he was playing to their racism. To have policies that hurt their lives, but I think people are star for authenticity, they're star for guts, and they want to see progressives who bring the fight to the right wing, rather than stand there like a nice John Kerry punching bag getting pummeled and pummeled over and over. I know exactly what you're that's,
2: saying. That's what Elizabeth was
3: saying. Yeah, Well, yeah, I just my whole thing is when you start calling them devils, if you're calling these people devils, here's one thing I know about religious people. You call them names, you're never going to reach any of them, and they're going to believe you're as evil as they say. I don't think it's productive to call them devils. I will call them fake Christians or frauds to have a debate about what parts of the Bible they follow, but I don't really believe Trump supporters worship Satan when nobody's there. I disagree with her on that, and I don't think it's constructive to call them Satan worshipers. That was my my difference with her.
2: Yeah, I think she gives them
3: too much credit. But yeah, yeah. But I'm all, but I'm all for bringing the fight to them. I do it all the time, and I do it using the Bible because I'm tired of seeing a religion based on compassion and love being used to justify being a cruel douchebag.